I don't know if you've picked up on this, but you have probably seen in the world at the moment that there is a, one of the currencies, one of the social currencies that we have is victimhood. So your, your kind of uh, privilege or your status or how respected you are is on the basis of how much of a victim you are. And in fact, the more victim, uh, more kind of angles that you can claim victimhood, uh, the more kind of uh, worthy you are, which is a strange way of thinking. Um, I'm some, they, they have a name for this. They call it intersectionality. The more kind of intersections of kind of minority groups that you belong to, the more um, you deserve to be heard. But... <clears throat> And, and trust me, this is seeping into the church. It is something that is, that is a danger for us, that we must recognize and, and say, no, thank you. However, there is a true, there is a true type of victimhood. Like there is, there is a such thing as, um, as being, having injustice done to you, that you can rightly say, no, thank you, or uh, this is wrong, or that we can plead the case of others who have suffered injustice. That is, that is good. In terms of trying to uh, trying to gain favour by uh, taking on this identity of victim, right, living in that identity as, um, as somebody who is um, marginalised, is not the way to go. It's not healthy. It's not helpful. And interestingly enough, <clears throat> Jesus doesn't say that we should live out of that identity either. We're going to talk about a passage. Where, where it is very clear who the victims are. Christians are the victims of the hatred of the world. Jesus is victim of hatred of the world against him. But he doesn't teach us now we have to kind of set up a, a, uh, an action group uh, and, and a lobby group to go and lobby for Christian rights. No, no. We are to live as Christ people and to live out the identity that we have in Christ even while we suffer even while we are victims of unjust hate and cruelty in many cases. So although I'm going to talk about unjust treatment at the hands of our enemies, it's not to curry up sympathy and position ourselves as, as, the, as uh, in need of, of uh, lots of sympathy on that part. We uh, have Christ in our corner. The Lion of Judah is on our side. Jesus will bring justice for his people. Christians will be vindicated. But on the road to God's kingdom, there are challenges. Jesus wants to prepare us to face them as we become victims of hatred, as we are persecuted, as we go through trials. Jesus is laying out a roadmap in discipleship. He's preparing us to face these trials. Don't be surprised when you see it coming. I, I think if you're familiar with uh, racing, you like motor racing, MotoGP, Formula One, V8, supercars, that kind of thing, but one of the things that the racers do in every place when they come to a new track, they have to learn the track. They have to learn the layout. They have to know where all the corners are, how wide they are, where are the best spots to overtake, uh, you know, where there's best spots to start braking so they can make it through the corner efficiently. They need to study the track and they need to know it turn by turn so they can be prepared to win, so they can be prepared to make it across the finish line. And that's what Jesus is doing in this latter half of John, in this discipleship intensive. 
For the last few hours he has with his disciples, he's downloading to them. This is how you live. This is how discipleship looks like when I'm gone. He's laying out the track and giving them the key features of what to look for. Now, to be fair, the track is slightly different in every age. The context of the first century is different to the third as opposed to the 16th, as opposed to today. But here's the thing. There is recurring features through every age. And Jesus is laying out what they look like so we can be prepared for them. The same issues come up again and again. Today's passage covers the opposition that Jesus' disciples will face. It will be a hard road. And remember, when we're talking about Jesus' disciples, we're talking about, yes, the 12 that were there in that room. But then there is implications from that that flow into all of Jesus' disciples. The 12 disciples and the rest that have come become Jesus' disciples down through history. So, as we're talking about the disciples, mostly I will be talking about implications for us here today. But these disciples, they're not to cower as victims, but instead they are to live lives full of joy in the face of the difficulties that they face. I've broken this into three parts. This passage I've broken into three parts that tell us about the discipleship of Jesus while facing the opposition. The first part is that we are hated for Jesus. We are hated for Jesus. This is uh, another one of those things that we need to get our minds around because uh, many of us uh, expect that we should be able to get through life without any enemies. But Christians have enemies. And you might say, oh, but Jesus said, love your enemies. And I'm saying, yes, love them, but remember, they are still your enemies. <laughs> you have to have enemies in order to be able to love your enemies. If we don't have enemies, we probably should start wondering why. Is it because we live in a, in a society where everybody is a Christian and so there are no enemies? Or is it more likely that we live among non-believers, but we are not different and distinct enough from them to actually be any different and worthy of being uh, hated for our differences. They've got no reason to hate us because we don't look enough like Jesus. Anyway, let's move on. Jesus tells us that Christians will very likely be hated, that we would expect to be persecuted. But why? Well, let's look at the text. Verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So Jesus is setting up a dichotomy here. He's setting up a, a, an opposition, a comparison between the world and the disciples, the, the people who belong to Jesus, Christians, the world and Christians. Who is this world? Well, it's a catch-all term. It's meant to basically mean everything outside Jesus. Uh, but this is one of those, uh, the world is used in different language across the Bible. Context shows us how uh, we should be thinking about the world. And sometimes the world is kind of considered positively. After all, the world is something that God made. There is something of God's beauty and wonder in the world, and God shows great kindness to the world. Um, but 
in this context, we're talking about the world in opposition to Jesus. The structures, the system, the people that is opposed to Jesus, that is opposed to God the Father. The world is characterized by this, this rebellion against God. When we are hated, don't take it personally. Because the world hated Jesus first, he is the real true object of scorn. We are only hated because we are emblems of Christ in the world. We are representative of what it looks like to be Jesus. And so the more we look like Jesus, the more we should expect that we're going to be rejected by those who rejected Jesus or rejected God. I understand that in some parts of the world, soccer is a, or football, to be more precise, is a really big deal. People follow it almost like a religion, right? And so there are those who, uh, there are places I understand where if you wear the wrong jersey uh, on the wrong uh, you know, football week, um, as, you are, as you're walking through the wrong neighborhood, you might even get beaten up because of, you represent the opposing side. So it's not because they actually hate that person individually. They only hate them because they represent the team that they hate. And it's like that with Christians. Often it is not actually a personal thing. It is just the problem that they, they hate Jesus and we look like Jesus. We've been chosen out of team world and been placed on team Jesus. So now we are aligned with their enemy. But why does belonging to Jesus make us enemies? We're submitting to Jesus. They're rebelling from Jesus. We're seeking to follow God's law. They are breaking God's law. We're fighting against our sinful desires. They are succumbing to their sinful desires. We have real joy. They have counterfeits. We have freedom. They have bondage. And you would think this would actually make the world want to come to Jesus. They would want to come into this new life, into this freedom and submit to Jesus. But that shows you the deceitfulness of sin, the hardening of the heart and the blinding of the eyes towards spiritual things. It is an unjustified hatred. There is no reason that they should hate the, the thing that should be their salvation. We should be unsurprised that the world hates Christians, that hates Jesus' disciples, because Jesus has given the example in this. Look in verse 20. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Jesus sets up three little comparisons here. Servants and masters. Why would the servants, or slaves literally, why should they expect better treatment than the master? If the master is hated and, and, and derided in, in the community, then he would, his whole household should expect the same because they belong to him. The, third, the second thing there, if they persecute the master, they will persecute his people, his house. We are connected to him and so we should expect to be treated the same way. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also. And then the third little comparison there, if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours. So, thinking about this, you know, what <laughs> if somebody is willing to listen and obey Jesus then they're also going to be willing to listen to the messengers of Jesus, the ones who are communicating the same word. 
And so people who refuse to hear the gospel and obey Jesus' teaching in the present day would be just as willing to refuse Jesus himself if he was to come. That's just a good reminder for those, for those times when we say, well, why can't God reveal himself now? Why, why doesn't Jesus appear here bodily and, and show me that he's real? Well, if you're not going to listen to the message that he has sent you down through the angels, you're not going to listen if he was to appear bodily. Even if somebody should return from the dead, they will be unwilling to listen. It is a problem in the heart. But let's think about for a second what we mean by persecution. They say, if they persecute me. Well, firstly, what we mean is not that you were a jerk and you treated somebody badly and so they don't like you anymore. If you, are, if you treat people poorly, if you're unkind to them, if you ride roughshod over them, if you basically sin against them and they don't like you as a result, well, that's not on Jesus. You can't go, oh, they, they, I'm a Christian and they hate me for that if you are actually mistreating people, not showing love to those around you. So we're not talking about that kind of persecution, justified um, consequences for your actions. What we're talking about here is the, the oppression of people or groups on the basis of who they are or, or what they've done. In this case, we're talking about per- Christians being persecuted because they belong to Jesus. Persecution can start small and then it grows. Persecution can start with being socially isolated from your community, them kind of pushing you aside, not wanting to hear what you have to say, not, you know, not wanting you to be involved in, in community life, being cut off from your community, being cut off from your family because of your faith. You know, for instance, if a fellow from Japan became a, a Christian and he stopped uh, worshipping his ancestors, he would probably be excluded from his community because he would see, be seen as bad luck on his family. They, he's not satisfying their ancestors and so he needs to be exiled. And I'm sure you've heard many stories about Christians who've been cut off from their families because of their newfound faith. So it can be forms of social isolation. Um, but persecution can come because of ideas too, like ideas or like perspectives, morals, if you could put it that way. Not something about Jesus directly, but about the implications of following Jesus. So in the, in the ancient world, pagan world, they were happy to have Jesus, even if you belong to pagan gods. But it's when you say you have to have Jesus alone and put aside all those foreign gods, all of a sudden they had a problem. They had a problem with the, this God, Jesus. But down through to our age, what's some of the ways that uh, we see us being isolated from our community because of the implications of following Jesus? Well, the big hot button one at the moment is sexual identity. The implication of following Jesus means that you must repent of your immorality. Everything from one night stands and ungodly divorces to LGBTQI identities. Now, now Christians love people who have done these things, love divorcees, we, we love... Um, we love people who have made mistakes. We love people who identify with these LGBT identities. But we want you to follow Jesus. And we want you to repent of the ways in which you have disobeyed God. And it means turning away from these things, turning away from these identities that are contrary to Christ. But because Christians believe this, because we are not affirming 
our bad choices, our, our sin, Christians are presently being softly excluded and in some places even hard excluded from community, society. In fact, there are laws in place already to persecute Christians who side with Jesus on this issue. It's maybe not in full force yet, it might not be as out in the open yet, but it is happening. And persecution increases from the annoyance and disdain of the community to the action based on law, as I just mentioned. And sometimes the law even turns a blind eye to what mobs will do because of the hatred towards Christians. Some places in the world, they will have laws against, you know, mobs and taking people out into the street and beating them up because of their religion. But sometimes the law will just turn a blind eye to that because they are happy for it to happen. In some places in the world, the, the law outlaws Christian worship that is not um, given the sanction of the government. China is a great example of that. Persecution may mean excluding and not employing Christians because of their faith. It might mean terrorizing Christians or forcing them to pay exorbitant fees. And as you go through the world watch list, you see all kinds of ways that Christians are persecuted from burning down church buildings to beatings and torture and even murder. Persecution is ongoing in many parts of the world and our own culture continues to depart from a Christ-based order. We can expect persecution to be increasing. This increasingly rebellious culture is increasingly rejecting anything that looks, smells, tastes, touch, feels like Jesus. But why would they treat us this way? Jesus says, they will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for this, their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. They do not know true love and so they reject love incarnate. They treat us this way because they do not know God. Even those who have a religion and are acting out of that religion, they are playing at religion. They do not know God. We'll talk some more about this later on. But at this time, Jesus is specifically referring to the religious leaders that are in front of him. You know, the, the Sanhedrin, you know, the Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, possibly even the Romans but probably more likely the Jewish leaders. They, they served God. They thought they served God, but they were deceived. They had the law. They had the testimony. They, had the, they, they followed the rule. They lived and walked and talked about the law, but they did not know the Father. And not only were they deceived, they were guilty of sin. And what, what this means, what Jesus is talking about here is not just in the general sense, we're all sinners, all of us who have been born, all of us who are alive, have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. But what Jesus in here is talking about is the specific, special kind of sin of rejecting God, rejecting Jesus. Jesus had brought them the gospel, the message of life. And they're not only trying to say, no thanks, we'll pass. 
they're actually going to murder the one who brought them the message. This is not some kind of passive, uh, just stand off. This, Jesus has brought them this good news and they have absolutely rejected it and pushed God away. They are refusing to obey God through Jesus Christ. And they're going to murder him. This is a little bit of a scary thing to talk about because when you share the gospel with people, you're bringing them the good news, the news that should save them, the news of life. Come to Jesus and find new life, freedom, love, peace. But the flip side of that is if they reject Jesus, if they reject the gospel, the gospel now becomes a judgment on them. The gospel becomes a judgment because they are without excuse. They can't plead ignorance. They can't say, oh, God, I would have followed you if only you had told me when God has sent people out into the world with the gospel to proclaim this gospel. It is a judgment. And the same goes here for these people who've heard Jesus and yet have rejected him. They saw this, they, they heard the message and they rejected him and now it is a judgment upon them. Jesus' words will be a, a judge against them on the last day. But not only have they rejected the words, they've rejected the signs as well. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated me both, both me and my Father. This is to fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without reason. There is no reason for them to hate Jesus. There is no reason for the world around us to hate Jesus. It's nonsensical and illogical, and yet... They did it anyway. Why would you hate the one who came to save you? Why would you hate the good news of eternal life? This uh, psalm, sorry, this fulfills uh, two psalms, two verses in two different psalms. It's a little bit confusing because he says what is written in their law. Jesus is using the word law to just refer to basically the Old Testament in in a nutshell. But let's look at one of those verses in Psalms. In Psalm 69 verse 4, it says, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me and those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. You can see here the psalmist talking about the injustice of this. There are so many people who stand against me. I presume this is a Davidic psalm. I might stand corrected. But you can see how, how Jesus is saying this embodies him. He's hated without cause. There are so many opposed to him. And, it's, and they ask that rhetorical question, what I did not steal, must I now restore? It's like, what? I, it's almost as though I have to give, pay back something that I didn't take from them. It's, it's so upside down and back of front. They hated him without cause. And if we're hated, we shouldn't be surprised because they hated Jesus first. we come to the second section and yes we're going to move a little bit faster through the next two parts we have this second session section where in the midst of this trial in the midst of the hatred of the world we are called to testify for Jesus we testify for Jesus even though Jesus is laid out you know they hated me without cause they will hate you they will persecute you because they persecuted me doesn't say hide away as a victim doesn't say that we are to kind of separate ourselves from the world and not talk to them or associate with them. 
Jesus says he's sending his Holy Spirit to keep the ministry going. And we are to join the Holy Spirit in that ministry. Look at verse 26. When the advocate, some of your translations will say helper or comforter. When the advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. You also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Here Jesus is saying, after all this bad news about the hatred that they're going to experience, the persecution, he's saying, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will testify about me. He will keep the message going out. He comes from the Father. He proceeds from the Father. And he is the Spirit of truth. Remember also in the previous passages that we've been looking at over John, we've seen what the ministry of the Holy Spirit. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to bring to mind what Jesus has taught, to teach them everything that Jesus taught them. And it's the same here. We see this. It's the Spirit of truth who will testify about Christ. This is what we expect the Holy Spirit to be doing in the world. He will testify about Jesus. Now, what do I mean by testify? It's probably not a word we, we use. We're, we're not a, a South American, sorry, a, an African-American church where we just yell out, testify at random times. No, we, um, but testify, it's that idea of, um, of proclaiming the truth of being a witness. For instance, if you're standing in the dock in a courtroom and you are a witness, you are to share the truth of what you have seen or what you know, right? So this is the idea of what the Holy Spirit does. He comes and proclaims the truth of the matter. He confirms what has been said. He confirms the good news. And so Jesus says, look, the Holy Spirit is coming to do this and you are to do this as well. This is a hand-in-hand thing. This thing I don't think he's trying to say the Holy Spirit's going to be over here doing testifying and you're going to be over here doing testifying. I think it's meant to be these two are doing it together. Jesus' disciples and his Holy Spirit are working at the same game. It's the same mission. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that the Holy Spirit does testify about Jesus through God's disciples. So even here, as, as we gather here this morning and we, and we sing these words and you hear me preach and we, we read the Bible, we expect that the Holy Spirit is in the midst of it, testifying about what Jesus does and who he is and this good news. These first 12 disciples that Jesus sent out are the foundation of the modern church, of the church that was built. Christ is the, sorry, I should say they are the, They are foundational. They are kind of the pillars on which the church is built. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the rock. He is the foundation. And then his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles were sent out into the world and and built up his church. And even now we rest and rely on them and their testimony that is recorded uh, in these pages that has been handed down to us. Interestingly enough, Jesus says, you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. There's something special about these guys that Jesus sent out because they had seen the ministry of Jesus and they were to testify to what they had seen and heard. And then Judas, obviously, he betrays Jesus and he uh, goes and commits suicide. But the 12 disciples go, there's something special about the number 12 and we should replace Judas. And what are the qualifications that they use to select a replacement? 
They say he must be somebody who has been with us from the beginning. Somebody who's been around Jesus and in their circles. Maybe he wasn't necessarily in the, in the, in the tight-knit 12, but they wanted somebody who had seen the ministry of Jesus from the beginning. And that's why they had those two guys of which they chose uh, Matthias by lot. But that was the qualifications of what they were looking for. They knew that it was important that the 12 had all been witnesses to Jesus' ministry. But even now, us descendants of the faith, we are to do the same thing, to go out into the world and testify about Jesus, to help disciple the nations. We have the Holy Spirit in us and with us if we belong to him. And we are to go out and to fulfill this ministry of testifying for Jesus. But then in our third section, we remember and remain in Jesus. We remember and remain in Jesus. Here we get a a nice little summary. Jesus says, why am I telling you these things? Why is he telling us these things? In verse 1 of chapter 16, he says, all this I have told you. Why? So that you will not fall away. These warnings, this instruction, this uh, painting a picture of what the future holds. Why? So that you will not fall away. Jesus teaches them this so that they might remain, so that they can abide in Jesus, as he's just said in the previous passage. These warnings, these instructions are what Jesus uses to keep us in the faith. We get, sometimes we trip over ourselves and we start thinking about divine uh, sovereignty and human responsibility. Well, God uses his divine sovereignty to teach us these things so that we will not fall away. The means that he uses to keep his faithful, to protect them, to help them endure to the end, is telling us these things, warning us, teaching us, so that we will not fall away. But what will the world do with those who remain in Jesus, who belong with him, who do not fall away? Well, they'll do stuff like this. They'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. Remember, the synagogue was the precursor to the church, uh, to churches. It was the Jewish communities who would gather to read God's word, to sing, to be taught, uh, you know, to pray. So it was, this, it was the proto, it was the, it's the prototype of what we think of as church now, where we gather together weekly to pray and to sing and to read God's word and to be taught. But Jesus is saying, look, you're going to be kicked out of your spiritual community because you belong to Jesus. You're going to be isolated. And in fact, not only that, they will kill people who belong to Jesus thinking that they're doing God a favor. And we see this in the early days of Christianity. Paul himself, the apostle, before he was converted, what was he doing? He was going around trying to arrest Christians and even see them executed. He stood there. He was there at the stoning of Stephen, looking after the coats while people picked up stones to throw them at Stephen. There were those who, who hated those who looked like Jesus and they, they killed Christians thinking they were doing God a favor. But of course, Paul's eyes were open when he met Jesus, 
when he saw that Jesus was indeed the one he was persecuting, the one who he was persecuting was God. And so he converted and became a Christian. But the pattern didn't stop. Even though Paul stopped persecuting, that wasn't the end of it. Down through the ages, what have we seen time and time again? I'm sure many of you have come across people like Voice of the Martyrs um, and some of the material, maybe read Fox's Book of Martyrs, an interesting book. You've, we've seen down through the ages that time and time again, Christians come up against those who are opposed to God and his people, and they are killed. Through in the Roman times, even in, in Muslim countries. But even within what you might think of as Christendom, there are those who, inside the church, I'm using air quotes, uh, inside the church, were actually not in with Jesus. They weren't abiding in Jesus. They had the outward signs, they baptized, they went to church, etc. They were even uh, people who were employed by the church, staff of the church, but they did not know God and they would, they would kill those people who belonged to Jesus. There's plenty of stories about this throughout the English Reformation when, uh, when they thought they were doing God a favor by burning Protestants at the stake. Uh, an, an example off the top of my head was uh, Thomas Cranmer. He was a guy who was presiding over the reformation of the English church. In, in England, they were, they were getting the Bible in their own language. And they were learning to do what the Bible said and not just to follow the traditions that had been handed down from them, many of which did not align with the Bible that they could now read. He was overseeing a, a return of, of, of English Christians to God's word, after King Henry's reign and then his uh, King Edward's reign, um, when Queen Mary was on the throne, she tried to turn back the tide of Reformation. And, uh, and Cranmer was uh, convicted of treason because of what he believed and heresy. And so they went to put him to death. Well, over this long extended period of time, they tried to get him to recant, to recant, to recant. And he, he gave up a few things. He said, okay, well, maybe I was wrong on this point or maybe I was wrong here. And eventually they extracted a, a longer recantation from him. And it looked like he had turned his back on everything that he had taught and believed from the Bible. And so he, he wrote out this, uh, this, this speech that he was going to give on, uh, on all the reasons, all the things basically that he had recanted from his uh, Protestant faith. And they approved this speech and he gave, got up to give this speech in a church. And after he started, he abandoned the script. He said, look, no, I was wrong. I made a mistake. I should never have recanted. And in fact, I, I, I'm, I fully believe what I said before. And, and I did the wrong thing by recanting. And in fact, he said, the hand that signed the recantation should be the first thing to be burned in the fire. And sure enough, they, they, they took him away while he was still speaking and they burned him at the stake, hand first. There are those who even calling on the name of Christ, saying they belong to Jesus, will stand up and kill those people who try to follow Jesus. Those people who actually look like Jesus, those who want to follow his commands. They thought they were doing God a favor. 
But the, the question still remains, why do they want to kill Christians? Christians aren't hurting anybody. Ours is a religion of love and peace, of humble service. Why do, we, why do they want to wipe us off the map? Jesus tells us why these things happen. Because they have not known the Father or me. People who do not know Jesus do not know God. Jesus is the only way to God the Father. And so how can they know what God desires if they haven't come to Him, if they do not know Him, if they have not met Jesus? They cannot know what God really wants. They're fumbling around in the dark without the light of Christ. And they're actually acting out their own deception and calling it service to God to make them feel better about it. They are threatened by Jesus because if what He says is true, then they will have to give up their sinful ways. If, if what we proclaim here each Sunday is true, then it is a threat to the world. It means that it will be judged, that people will be judged for the way that they have lived. It means that they are living a lie. If this is true, then, then they will need to abandon their way of life and submit to Jesus. And so in some sense, I empathize with those people who, who have um, you know, lived a longer life rebelling against Jesus because turning to Jesus, converting to Jesus means giving up everything, repudiating everything that they have done before. It gets harder and harder the longer you live because there's more and more that you have to say, no, I was wrong. And it's hard for us to acknowledge that we were wrong. Even within our closest relationships with those people who we know will forgive us, it's still hard to say, I was wrong. On small things, how much more when we have to say, my whole way I have lived my life was wrong. But you must. You must turn away from your living in rebellion against God. What is better, to live in that deception, to live holding on to your sin and rebellion, or, or to let the light and truth reign in your life? Is it better to walk about in darkness and, and hold on to the illusion of control, covered up by pitiful excuses? Or is it better to come into the light of Christ and receive restoration and redemption and love? Come into the light. Come to Jesus. Come to your heavenly Father. You will gain nothing by living apart from Him. Your outlook, apart from Jesus, is misery and judgment. But there is a way of escape. God's wrath is revealed against your unrighteousness, your sin, your rebellion, your mistakes. You are, you are unrighteous because you have rebelled against God, sinning against Him. You have committed high treason against the God of the universe. But Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. He suffered and died in your place. He suffered and died in your place so that you could escape from wrath to light and life, to forgiveness and mercy. The world is opposed to God, but God so loved the world and He loved it in a special way by sending His only begotten Son that whomever believes in Him shall not perish, but receive eternal life. If you would believe in Him, you can have eternal life. If you would repent from your unrighteous ways, you can have eternal life. Turn away from, from your 
from your rebellion, from your sin, and come to Jesus. Convert. Switch teams. You're switching to a team that sometimes looks like it's losing. It looks like the underdog, often. But it is a team that is full of sinners like you. So don't be surprised at the hypocrisy of Christians. Most often the hypocrisy of Christians is just people coming to realize the fact that Christians are still sinners like the rest of the world. Recovering sinners, but still affected by sin. Hopefully we sin less and less as we grow, as we, as we bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So don't be surprised when you come to church and you find sinners. But you're invited to, to join Jesus' team and experience the scorn and hate of the world. What a, what a pitch that is. Come and join the team that is hated and maligned and persecuted. <laughs> but, but Jesus has laid out the track before you. He said, look, there is a finish line. The finish line is over here and it will be tough to get there. There will be hatred on the way. There will be persecution. There will be suffering. There will be discipline from God himself who disciplines those whom he loves. It is a hard way. It is a narrow way. But there is a finish line. And those who get there receive the crown of everlasting life. They are those who come into God's presence in, they come into his, into his house. They are those who receive eternal life and, and crowns of glory. Don't be surprised. Jesus said that this would happen. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you'll remember that I warned you about them. I warned you about them, that you, this was coming. So you can pick your racing line. You can pick the route. You can see that it's coming and be prepared for it. The trials will come. But James reminds us, blessed is the person, the man, who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is what is held out for you. Yes, the world will hate you. Yes, there will be trials. Yes, it will be difficult. But blessed is the one who remains steadfast under that trial. For when you have stood the test, you will receive the crown of life, which is promised to those who love him. We are hated for Jesus. We are hated for Jesus because we look like Jesus. We belong to Jesus. They hated him first, but we are hated as well. Maybe not as much in some days. Sometimes it's not as obvious. But if they hate you, remember that they hated Jesus first. We testify with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus and we testify about, the, about Jesus as well. And we are remembering Jesus' words and remaining with him. And those who remain with him, who stand fast through the trial, receive a great crown of eternal life. Let me close with, these, with this prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for warning us about what is coming for Christians. Thank you for telling us about, uh, <laughs> telling us these things so that we might prepare, so that we might uh, remain even when the trial and testing comes. We thank you, Lord, that you will give a crown of life to those who, who push through to that end. But Lord, we also recognize our inability to reach the end. 
without your grace and your mercy, without your strength. Lord, please be with us. Please, Lord, help us to stand fast. Help us, Lord, to testify, to be witnesses to what Jesus has done, to confirm his words. Help us, Lord, to be worthy of having enemies, to be those who who stand with Jesus, who look like Jesus, who smell like Jesus. Lord, please give us the, the heart, the attitude that the disciples had who were rejoicing that they were, they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. We pray these things for the glory of, of for your glory in and through the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.